Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast, brought to you by Monash University. This is the podcast for anyone interested in what lives on the overlap of cutting-edge science and ancient spiritual practices. From monks to neuroscientists, our expert guests join Dr. Mark Miller and Jamie Slevin to explain how contemplative practices work, and crucially, how they can help us improve our lives. Join us each week for Ancient Wisdom Made Practical. Welcome to the Contemplative Science Podcast. My name is Jamie, and as always, I'm joined by co-host Dr. Mark Miller. Mark, how are you, man? I'm great. It's beautiful out, and I love doing this. This is like the best part of my week. Michael, that we're going to be introduced in a second, is actually a friend and colleague of mine, so I'm excited he's on the show. Yeah, today we're lucky enough to be welcoming Dr. Michael Lifshitz onto the show. Michael is Assistant Professor of Psychiatry at McGill University and the Jewish General Hospital in Montreal. He did his PhD in neuroscience at McGill and then a postdoctoral fellowship in anthropology at Stanford. He's interested in a whole bunch of things like plasticity of consciousness, and he studies practices that aim to transform our subjective experience from meditation and hypnosis to placebo, prayer, and psychedelics. Michael, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're doing some really interesting research on the neuroscience of meditation and on a whole bunch of other stuff. And I want to start with hypnosis because this is something that isn't particularly well understood, or rather it's something that I have a preconception about that I'm almost certain doesn't align with the reality. So to kick off, what is hypnosis in the context of your work? Well, I guess hypnosis, it's a bit controversial. So one of the really like cornerstone debates in the hypnosis world is whether hypnosis should be understood as a special state of consciousness. Mm. or as something maybe more general, like just a way of using the power of suggestion. So basically suggestion, I mean, again, it's kind of like you can think about it in different ways, but it's basically the idea that there's some kind of communicated concept or idea, and it can be communicated in like specific words or just in cues from your environment. I don't know, like even just the suggestion, oh, it's a rainy day maybe I'm going to feel more sad or something. Even without a kind of thinking it explicitly, I might have that kind of cue. And the idea is that suggestions actually have very powerful effects on our thinking, on our emotions, on our behaviors, on our biology. And a lot of these effects happen below the level of consciousness or we don't really realize they're happening. Hypnosis is like kind of often we think of it as this very specific kind of scenario where you have a hypnotist and you have someone who's being hypnotized and then the hypnotist kind of goes through this procedure called an induction. It can be different things, but it usually involves suggestions to relax or to focus your attention in particular ways. And the idea is that that puts you in a specific kind of receptive mind state or brain state, some people might think. And then that state makes you more suggestible so now whatever the hypnotist says or whatever you say to yourself will have an even deeper effect than it would in your normal everyday life. But it's actually quite controversial to what extent you need to be in any kind of special state to have really strong influences from suggestions. And it turns out that like people who are really suggestible, because there's a lot of individual variability in who's responsive, and it turns out that people who are responsive tend to be responsive whether or not they just got a hypnotic induction. And sometimes you can find like almost the same powerful effects, even just in a normal kind of waking scenario. It's actually like a really rich, deep literature in the scientific world that until recently was like kind of put to the side. 
But, you know, even going back to like Charcot and Freud was interested in hypnosis, it's like really built into the whole like lineage of Western psychiatry and psychology. So there's a lot there, a lot to say. Yeah, the way you've put that, it doesn't sound like, as I imagined it, a separate state. You're either being hypnotized or not being hypnotized. No, it's more like hypnosis is making use of existing mechanics. And if you say the weather is, it's raining outside, you're not hypnotizing me. You're just highlighting the fact that I've already got this mechanic of suggestibility that's subconscious. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's really interesting to think about particular kinds of states of mind that might make us more susceptible to suggestions. Like, I think there's reason to think, for instance, different meditative states or psychedelic states or, you know, just being drowsy or feeling more trust towards the person who's hypnotizing you, all kinds of things that just might make your your brain or your mind more malleable, more receptive. But I, to me, like just the basic concept that the ideas you have about your experience profoundly impact that experience, that's what to me I kind of really caught on and, and rolled with in terms of hypnosis and where most of my work in that domain has been. So then like I started thinking a lot about how meditation is this other kind of practice, which we normally think of as like quite distinct from hypnosis, or I guess, again, there's like all kinds of different ways of thinking about it. And a lot of people would ask the question, like, is meditation one form of self-hypnosis? Or like, are they the same thing? Are they different? The way I started asking that question was just by calling up meditation researchers and asking them what they thought about hypnosis. Yeah, right away. I don't like it. You know, I don't. Yeah. Well, because I think I think you'd like to think that at least the meditation that I do, you'd like to think that you're getting you're getting to something real. You're not just putting yourself into an altered state or you're not just giving yourself high suggestibility. But then, you know, even just you bringing that up and me pushing that line I think would that actually be such a bad thing? Because actually there's a lot of benefit you could probably have by suggesting the right sorts of things to you in the right sorts of states. But I got to just be honest, it makes me feel a little bit weebly to think meditation is just sort of a kind of hypnosis. Yeah. So what you just said is like the paradigmatic response. (laughs) Like meditation is about getting at something real and hypnosis is a way of kind of tricking yourself or like fabricating something that's not real. You know, a lot of meditators and like meditation researchers and teachers are kind of like, keep your hypnosis away from us. (laughs) So there's a lot of, there's a lot to say about that. It's not like just because you're suggesting something, it has to be something that's not real. Right. I mean, one thing we know is that suggestions are very have a lot of impact on your attention. So you can suggest changes in attention and, and that'll have a very strong effect. So, for instance, you could say for the next 10 minutes, I want to be, be very clear minded, And that's a suggestion. And so actually what becomes interesting is then you start to realize that a lot of meditation instructions and a lot of actually like the practices Even when it's like a practice that's very kind of coming to a very bare awareness of experience or coming into your body or kind of a simple concentration state or something like recognizing the nature of awareness, those kinds of practices often have a lot of suggestion built into them. And even then you get things like, you know, like entering a jhana, you set an intention to enter the jhana in a certain kind of way and then or maybe for a certain amount of time. And it's that intention that kind of like verbal or symbolic concept that like somehow resonates through your cognitive system and then allows that specific mind state to exist in that way. And what then do you see the potential benefits to be 
of in these various states hypnosis especially relating to what i've read as cognitive and emotional flexibility i mean i guess one of the things that i'm really interested in too and kind of why i went more in like an anthropological and social science direction is because i think the idea of benefit is complicated like it just really depends what you're after the research world has tended to focus on like mental health in a particular kind of way which is embedded in like like psychiatry and all these ideas about what it means to be well and what it means to like function well and feel good and to me it's kind of like as i engage more with other kinds of literatures like i don't know even just reading like kind of like more queer literature or like things that kind of call into question certain ideas about what the good life is in the first place and like what it means to be well or kind of like the social construction of the concept of wellness and again like i'm not at all an, an expert in those things yet where i hope to learn more as i go i guess like it's just like an ongoing journey for me where i'm kind of constantly coming up against ways in which i assume that certain kinds of things are good and then i realize that actually maybe not like a really simple example is like anger or states like fear or anger where i think a lot of the times you see in like discourse around mindfulness or around contemplative practice not to reduce or say that this is like all, that all the literature is just making this kind of simplification but i think it is a tendency to say things like you're trying to kind of overcome fear, overcome negative emotions, overcome things like your ego, anger. And then I just think then you come up into situations where you realize that those kinds of responses actually have a lot of adaptive benefit. Yeah, they're too the you know the 2 billion year old systems, you know, that have been growing in for a really long time. So of course they have some adaptive function. I know some of your work has been on this idea of cognitive and emotional flexibility. And like, if we take off the shelf sort of wholesale well-being, it does seem to me like to a certain degree, having flexibility of mind and having the flexibility to adjust our emotional sets appropriately to the situation does seem like something we would want as a cognitive emotional organism. You know, you don't want to get stuck in any one set past its goodness. And that's something you've been interested in in your research, right? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I think the idea of flexibility intuitively makes sense to me. You know, for instance, I often get kind of queasy or like allergic or something lights up in me when I hear anything about ego being bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I find often there's yeah. this talk of kind of like, you are not your stories or like, there's this kind of sense that it would be better to live in a kind of grounded, like grounded in your body in a way where you're not kind of extending a story about yourself into the future, into the past. And I think like, I don't know if anyone actually really believes that because it just seems so implausible to me that like, why would you not want to have a story about like how could anything <laughs> meaning or meaning, meaning just doesn't make sense. Like meaning only is a story. Right. So yeah. like, yeah. to me then yeah. anything like about anything like that doesn't really make sense, but then it becomes really clear to in my own experience, like, it's really nice sometimes to be able to just drop all the stories for a second. Yeah. Yeah. So targeted, targeted use of that wisdom where now you're carrying around a trauma long past 
the point where it seems applicable anymore. Like let's say in a different context, when you were much younger, you had an issue and now you're still acting that out with your current partner, even though that was a five-year-old thing and now you're 30 years old and you have all these new skills and abilities. That seems like the right kind of place where you might want to target that wisdom and say, well, look, you need to flexibly update the way that you're seeing the world because you're not five years old and you have all these new skills and abilities. So maybe it's time to drop that narrative. So I hear you with that targeted approach, but you're right. I mean, it's very weird to think, what do you want to live with? No, with no history where you don't know who you are or none of that matters. Of course that matters to us. Right. So I think to me, the idea of, yeah, like some kind of flexible holding things lightly, except I guess in moments you might want to hold things tightly, actually, like if they're slipping out of your grasp and they're really important to you. So like right grip, the ability to right grip your life so you can let go, but you can also hold when you choose for more controllability in a way. I just find, and I don't know, like I don't have like a really fine grained analysis of this, but it's an instinct that I have that there seems to be a kind of prioritizing or like the pendulum has shifted towards thinking that letting go is better than holding on. And to me, like holding on is just as important as letting go. We just had Adam Saffron on and he was talking about entropy in the brain. You know, you've got this big, you know, it's a pretty hot topic right now that you have all these stuck beliefs and they're a bit nasty and a bit cruddy and a bit outdated. And then what you want to do with psychedelics or with meditation or with prayer or with anything else that does this, you can create more entropy in the brain. Now things get looser and hotter and wider and then it cools, but it was cool talking to Adam because he was like, yeah, but like, let's make sure we're clear. You don't want to just heat the brain up. You don't want to just let go of your old stuff because also, you know, some things like schizophrenia might be typified by too much entropy. Now you don't know where to be or where the valleys of importance are. And that's got to be just as important as getting rid of the bad stuff as you've got to install good stuff. And that's got to be properly gripped, gripped hard where things that matter to you matter, like really matter. Yeah. That's exactly it. And I guess to me then too, I'm really interested in the question of agency and like particularly experiences where you feel that there's some kind of agency that exceeds you that you're kind of following or like surrendering to. So obviously like in hypnosis, that's a good kind of example where you have a hypnotist and then what allows you, I think, to respond deeply to the suggestion is to really trust and surrender. It's basically like installing the control of the, or like the will of the hypnotist in place of your own in a kind of like strategic way. There's a, you know, a myth that like a hypnotist could just like make you do something you really wouldn't want to do. And I don't think that's quite true, it seems, from the literature. It seems like at some point you can kind of like kick in and decide, I don't want to do this anymore. But then there's other situations. I mean, prayer or psychedelics are really interesting because often what happens is that people feel like they're in touch with some kind of intelligence or trajectory of being or like whether it's like God or some kind of spirit or it can be like being in a forest and feeling like there's some kind of thing happening there that's larger than you that actually has a kind of logic to it. Have you done any research here, Michael? Like, do you have any, do you have any interesting findings from this sort of field, even if they're sort of preliminary findings? I'd love to hear. I mean, yeah, we're definitely doing a lot of research on like trying to understand how people cultivate experiences where they feel that there's an agency that like whether it's the will of God when they're speaking in tongues that kind of comes into their body and then that has particular effects in the brain that we're interested in. But maybe just like the general thing that I think is kind of interesting about it 
is that then it also complicates this idea that like when you say like flexibly updating, almost like choosing when to grip and when to let go or something. But but I feel like all of that, and here I'm really kind of just like, <laughs> just yeah, come going on, into like a philosophical <laughs> stone philosopher mode. But like, I think that still has this implication that there's like a central subject who can make a decision who know, who can know what's right for themselves, right? Like I think I'm I'm really interested in the, in learning to listen beyond ourselves. I don't know, like I think that can come in many different ways. That can mean like listening to other people's experiences who are maybe different, who can show you that what you think is the right way to modulate your attention is maybe actually a very narrow way of or like that just that there's something you're not seeing about yourself or about the world. And then I think also learning to listen to like non-human forces. And again, it's really like not something I understand yet, but I know there's a lot of interesting work in anthropology and obviously just like in outside of academia, thinking about how being surrounded by like a forest or different kinds of living beings who are not human, that there's actually like some really meaningful information about life. I mean, like most basically, right? Like, it's just like, we're in an ecosystem, we're killing ourselves as a species. Like there's something about realizing that the kind of like types of optimization that we think are good might be a very kind of- Suboptimal way of organizing. Yeah, and then, and they also there's also all kinds of like cultural and historical trajectories that make us think that a certain kind of thing is optimal. So I guess I'm just interested in, in my own life too, this balance between kind of self-regulation and then like sometimes something draws me and it actually feels really unhealthy. So there's this kind of rational, like calm, balanced mind that would be like, oh, I shouldn't do that thing. That's kind of like throwing me off kilter or that's like an unknown, that's risky. That feels like, I don't know, even like hedonistic or like giving into some kind of instinct in me that seems dangerous. But I think often, you know, like I'm not saying we should all just do reckless, crazy things, but there's just something like sometimes you don't know where things are pulling you. And and there's something interesting about kind of like letting yourself be led by forces that you don't, you yourself don't understand. Especially when, as you've described, both in terms of the meditation literature, but also then just in terms of in the macro, like we're killing ourselves as a species, our understanding of good and our current sort of radar of what benefit is, is not necessarily anything to shout about. We're quite good at telling stories, quite aggressive, dramatic stories and making a whole song and dance that this is the dream and this is the utopia. On the one hand, like I don't want to be a self or have a narrative and somehow I've calculated that meaning is going to be preserved and also like, oh, well, this is sensible and rational and therefore must be pursued. But as you say, like anyone who asks themselves, like, when have I made a decision that did seem risky and off kilter or even verging on hedonistic? When was that for the best? Because the truth is, I don't think we're pulled to things for no reason, right? Our intuition is not this total slave to rationality and that's the thing that leads the way. And I wonder when you talk about agency there, is that the kind of thing you're getting at in part? Yeah, so I mean, I feel like my kind of overarching research question, which is kind of hard to like quite grasp is like how do you find guidance 
in my own life, there's this kind of like mysterious, mystical guidance thing that, and I don't know what it is. And I'm not like, I'm, I feel like I'm a mystic in the sense that I really just think things are very mysterious. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like, I'm very kind of agnostic, but like, even just like having a dream that feels so significant or like even when I when I decided to do my postdoc, like I was thinking where should I do my postdoc, and then I started I read about Tanya Lerman's work, who I ended up working with, and my my friend was like you should look into her work, and then I did, and as soon as I looked at it, I was reading it, and I remember, and sometimes I have these experiences like on the computer, like I'll be looking at a website, and my whole body kind of starts tingling, like I just have this feeling like this. There it is. That's the thing right there. And that's going to happen. It's going to work. This is now going to work. Yeah. Yeah. And even though like, you know, then I emailed her and she was like, I don't have any money for you. (laughs) Sorry. Like whatever, you know, like there were things that had to happen, but I'm just really interested in like creating a space in my own life. And I think this is part of what spiritual practice often is, is like learning to listen for some kind of mysterious guidance. And I think it's like really hard to kind of scientifically articulate what that might be. But so that's why like I've been interested in particular practices that I think start to get us somewhat in that direction. Are you able to take these like life um, aims and put them in the lab? Do you get to do you get to cross do you get to cross pollinate these sort of personal trajectory with your with your research? Because I'd love to hear some of the research here too. Yeah. So I mean, I guess I became really interested in um, like personified experiences of encountering personified presences. So basically, like a, a you know, an example would be like meeting a spirit. Oh, I got. We got to get into this. Keep coming because I want. I want to come back around to this. Keep okay. Going. I mean, this is basically what I'm really interested in. Um, yeah. Like. I mean, I've had experiences like maybe most notably like smoking DMT where it feels, and it's very common, it feels like there's a higher intelligence of some sort, really like pretty clearly just berating you with lessons. Like, you know, like you've got it wrong. Like here's what, or, or just like holding you in some kind of like loving presence. But basically there's some other, there's really this strong feeling that there's someone else or something beyond you that's present in your mind or in your kind of field of experience that is actually revealing something to you that you yourself didn't already. Yeah. Wow. Have access to. Yeah, spooky. So those experiences really moved me. And then I also became really interested in things like active imagination, like the Jungian practice where, because in dreams, right, like we all have these experiences all the time where we encounter a world with agencies and presences and people or beings who aren't kind of materially present, but they feel real and they might teach us things. And they're surprising. We don't know what they're going to do necessarily. They do surprising things. So active imagination is this idea that you can kind of communicate with the dream world or like that kind of unconscious reservoir of stuff in your waking life. And then you kind of imagine scenarios and you can go quite deep with it. And so I just was really interested in all of that because to me, it felt like in my own spiritual practice, those kinds of encounter moments 
just really moved me and kind of like shifted the way I think about the world in profound ways. And honestly, I just think it's like, there's something aesthetically appealing about it. Like, it's just beautiful to me. I think I just like the feeling of the imagination. It kind of feels like magic. I like the idea of kind of enchanting the world. So then I turned to Tanya's work because she works, she's been studying for many years and decades, people who cultivate relationships with invisible or immaterial presences, whether through like witchcraft Mm. or through prayer and basically studying like techniques or technologies where you actually deliberately learn to use your mind in a way that makes your imagination more available to these kinds of experiences. I was particularly interested in this practice called tulpamancy because well, can you tell us what it is first? Yeah. What just Tulpamancy is? It was originally a Tibetan Buddhist practice, but it's kind of mostly forgotten. And it comes from like the dream yoga tradition. And basically in the dream yoga tradition, the idea is that in the dream world, you learn to manipulate dreamscapes or the happenings of, of a dream in order to kind of understand that perception is actually more malleable than you realize. And, and, and basically to start to understand the processes by which your mind constructs reality. And then there's these, the flip side of it is there's daytime practices where when you're awake, you kind of conjure forms in your mind. So you basically create illusions deliberately as a way, again, of starting to understand that actually all of your perceptual experiences are in some sense like fabricated illusions. Have you gotten a chance to do some research on this, like to see, you know, what does that actually look like in a bio basis? And can we get any markers for what's going on under the hood for this kind of process? Yeah. So we collected like fMRI data from 22 expert tulpamancers. Wow. So these are people who have like been doing it for a long time. They have very active and kind of robust and willing tulpas. And so then we brought them in. We asked them to basically speak in their minds in different conditions. So we would either ask this, the, they call it the host, like the person who created the original self who created the tulpa. We'd ask the host to speak in their mind, or then we would ask the tulpa to speak in their mind voice. Or we, we had a kind of a simulation control condition where we had the host imagine a friend or like their mom or someone else who isn't a tulpa. So it's like recruiting a lot of the same hypothetical mechanisms like social cognition, imagining a person, hearing a voice, all these things. Language centers. Yeah. But then crucially, there's not this feeling that there's actually someone else present who really has. Yeah. Some autonomous, some autonomous other. Yeah. So we basically did that in a couple different ways. And then we also, so tulpamancers can do something called possession, where the tulpa takes over their body or, or controls certain aspects of their body. So for those who could do that, we also had conditions where people would write things down or their tulpa would, would possess their hand and write it down and, and so on. And so I wish I could tell you what we found, but actually Jonas, who we both know well, is is analyzing the fMRI data right now. And I think by the end of this week, we might know what we found. Um, wow. I have hypotheses. 
Um, is there consistency amongst people's experiences? So you said like, you know, some tulpas can do certain things and others can't. That's an interesting thing because it implies the tool itself is universalized or something we all have access to. Because why else would there be consistency in people's abilities, etc.? Yeah, so I mean, what's interesting about tulpamancy is that there are like very clear guides, like there are techniques that you can follow. And the basic concept is that anyone who like in somewhat of a disciplined, rigorous way, follows the techniques, should be able to create a tulpa. I think some people struggle more than others. For sure, there's like natural proclivities. So, so yeah, I mean, basically, the, the concept is anyone can do it, but then people choose to focus on different aspects of it. So some people decide, I don't really care about possession, like my tulpa is happy just being inside the mind space and they don't really need access to my body to feel good. And some people focus on really training the ability to have like full-fledged hallucinations where like their tulpa actually looks like a, a visual object, like opaque in their visual field, or they hear it like as if it's really an auditory stimulus hitting their ears. But most tulpamancers are kind of like, that just takes so much work and it doesn't really matter because like, what matters is I feel like my tulpa is really there with me and we can communicate anyway. Like, I don't really care if her voice is like crystal clear. Do you have any insight on how the ancient Tibetans, just because you've sort of like bumped into a couple of the old suttas or texts with this in it, how did they end up using, did they use the tulpas at all in any of these ways? Do you know? Like, is there, is there anything about like making another presence and then having it do anything or be in any way? I wonder. Not with like tulpas that I'm aware of. I mean, I think the related thing is like, like yidam practices or like deity yoga practices. I've never practiced those practices, but it seems like there you're kind of visualizing a bodhisattva or, or maybe a guru or some kind of like deity who has certain characteristics or qualities that you actually want to learn from them or kind of merge with. And so, you know, you'll have practices where you're, you're kind of visualizing this being and then it, I still can't really get a clear I've asked a few different people about whether you ever speak to the deity and it seems like a bit kind of informal maybe sometimes other times no but but certainly there's qualities of their mind that you then are trying to imbue into yourself so then you kind of merge them into you which to me seems in a lot of ways similar to what people are doing with like praying to God or having a yeah. I heard a story one time about a tulpa in Tibetan Buddhism. I can't remember the monk or nun who this story relates to, but the story was that they had created a tulpa over time. And the reason they did it was because they were on long retreat and somebody had to go get the groceries. And so they produced a split in their experience so that the primary consciousness could continue to sit in the meditation box in the cave and the tulpa driving the body outside of that experience could go and get the food from the local village and bring it back. But the experience for the monk or nun was one of opening their eyes after meditation and their groceries had been delivered by their tulpa so that they could keep practicing in a consistent, persistent, right. you know, in the way that they had dedicated themselves to practicing. That's cool. I've never heard that story. What some do you think, if there's a takeaway lesson, a takeaway principle here, from the tulpas and the experience people have had with them, what would that lesson be? Well, I guess my mind goes two places. You can think about, like if you kind of zoom out, 
in a way then a tulpa becomes like a way of accessing i mean self is a complicated word as we were kind of seeing over and over again but like accessing something in your kind of body mind that exceeds your normal self like your ego self boundaries or at least your kind of conscious willful capacities and that can give you all kinds of insights and reflections and guidance and support that you wouldn't be able to access if you were not trying to kind of create this reflection mechanism somehow. So to me, it's just kind of like a really clear illustration or like maybe a kind of intensified or extrapolated illustration of the power of seeking guidance from your unconscious. And it just seems like one really potent technology that people have developed to do that in a way that really supports them and like that they get a lot out of and that maybe has these other, you know, that maybe actually creates another being and kind of fundamentally restructures like the whole body mind system. And then the other side of it, which I guess is related and comes back to the idea of flexibility is just that rather than thinking about like contemplative practices or spiritual practices as somehow like an attempt to like transcend the self to realize that you can fashion yourself in all of these ways that like we don't even realize are possible and that the self is this kind of constructed thing and so i think tulpamancy is really interesting because you actually see a self get constructed from the ground up and i think there's something really there's something there about just like the possibilities of constructing our own selves in creative new ways and kind of the power of the imagination as a site for self-fashioning. Michael, where can everybody find you? Google Scholar? I don't know. I don't really do social media too much. No, but by email, I guess. I think like my email should be pretty easy to find. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. That's an episode we haven't had before. And I'm massively grateful that we did have it. So thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. This has been the Contemplative Science Podcast. And as always, we will see you next week. So thank you for listening to the Contemplative Science Podcast. We're available on the podcast app of your choice, as well as on YouTube as a video podcast. If you're interested in exploring the rich landscape between science and contemplative practices, check out Monash University's Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies 